Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim wraps up our current mini-series we've been calling Up and to the Right, with a message that asks the question, what do we do when faith becomes doubt? As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Matthew 14 this morning. Matthew chapter 14. And uh, we're going to try to wrap up a kind of a micro series that we've been doing inside of a macro series. Uh, So for the last year, we've been looking at Matthew. um, But for the last few weeks of Matthew, uh, we've been looking at the center section of Matthew. And it's an interesting section because all of a sudden uh, in this section, what was kind of, uh, we call the series up and to the right question mark. Because if you were to stop the series at Matthew 13, up until this point, Jesus' life kind of feels like it's been going up and to the right. The crowds have been getting bigger. The miracles have been getting bigger. More people are attracted to Jesus. Uh, His teachings are gathering more influence and more of a crowd. And then you get to the middle. And uh, what you discover when you start wrestling through the middle section of Matthew is things pretty significantly turn. And the crowds get smaller. Jesus is rejected by uh, first the religious leaders, and then he goes to his own hometown. These are people he grew up with, and they're offended by him. He has to leave. He then immediately finds out that his, like the very next story, he finds out that his cousin John has been uh, murdered. All this is boom, 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 boom. And then he invites his disciples, because the crowds have kind of thinned, And essentially, he says to his disciples, this is not just how faith is going to work in my life. If you follow me, it's going to look like this in your life, too. If you follow me, uh, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. Um, The cross was a symbol of torture. And so the path of faith, even though uh, it can look sometimes like it's always up and to the right, the stories we often tell, even in churches, are stories of victory and triumph. And you'll hear stories of, you know, I once was an alcoholic, and now I'm not. Christ set me free. Or I once was uh, lonely, and now I'm not. Christ set me free. And we tell these stories, and they're good stories. But often the way faith looks is it's up, and then it's down, and it's mountaintop, and then it's valley, and it's celebration, and then it's mourning. And that's actually the path of faith. And so we've spent the last uh, I don't know, five or six weeks looking at that. Um, but we, if, you, if you've noticed, so we've done Matthew 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and now we're back in Matthew 14. We pulled one story out because we said, uh, as we were putting this together, if there was one story that kind of summarizes everything we've been trying to say so that uh, we could kind of teach to it, and then at the very end say, in case you missed all of that, here's one story that kind of shows the whole thing. Uh, this story, I think, more than any other shows the journey. And so um, it's in Matthew chapter 14. Let's read it together and then we will uh, we'll dive in. Matthew 14, verse 22. You guys doing okay? Everyone's doing good? Preseason football's here. Yeah, Aiden Hutchinson's looking good. It's looking good, amen. It's looking good. All right, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there all alone. 
And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's I. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So that's the story. And my guess is, if you're like me, you read a story like that, you may have heard that story. We just sang that story. Um, but it raises all kinds of questions in you, unsettling questions. In fact, this is the story that, for some of us, confirm our worst fear about God. This story. Um, notice how the passage begins. Uh, the passage begins by saying, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. And then it says he goes off on his own to pray. So he makes his disciples get in a boat, and then he goes to pray. These are the questions. Why, why does Jesus make them get in a boat? You wonder that? Like, why does Jesus make them do it? Uh, then why does Jesus leave them in the middle of it? Why uh, does he leave them all alone in a storm uh, to kind of battle the storm? Why the storm? Why the suffering? Why? Uh, these are the questions. Um, uh, if you've personally encountered the storm, these are the questions, aren't they? I, I mean, if I've heard any set of questions more than any other, uh, these very personal, if you allow yourself to go there and ask them, terrifying questions. Because where those questions may lead is a terrifying notion. Like, what happens? Uh, here's, here's the form of the questions I often hear. The first set of questions is usually a question around, why me? Why is this happening to me? Like, what did I do to deserve this? What, did I mess up in some way? Why me? Why is my life like in this space? And then that's followed quickly by, why not them? That's the question that we actually, you may even feel like, okay, that feels selfish to even utter that. But, it, but then you start like playing the game and it's hard to not go here. Okay, why me? Why not them? Why did we have the miscarriage and not them? They complain about the kids that they didn't plan for. We've been trying. Why can't we have a child? Why them? Why not us? Or why, when we work hard and we've been saving and pinching the pennies and we've been, we've been stressed about money, why is it that they continue to be able to go on these elaborate vacations and like, take these giant gambles in their finances and things keep working out for them, but for us it just doesn't. Why us? Why me? Why not them? And then that's followed very quickly by a third question. Um, they kind of, like dominoes, fall into each other. Why God? God, why you? Why do this? Because somehow you did this. If you're powerful, and if, like, why would you do this, God? Why didn't you stop this? Why this? And if you keep following that like domino of questions, you start to ask the question of like, okay, God, where are you in this? Do you even care? Are, are you even there? Do you even notice? 
did God cause this storm? Is this like part of God's plan? Uh, is this this? Um, and, and of course, if you like ask some like well-intended Christian friends, they're going to say things like, you know, this is just God testing you. Is it? Is it? If you ever know someone who's got a child with cancer, is that God testing them? Because that feels like a sick kind of test. Would you agree? Like, is this all just part of God's like test? And if so, how could we call that God good? If this is all, because cancer and especially children with cancer, that's not good. So how do we call that? And then somebody else will say, well, yeah, you just need to, um, you just need to have faith. You just need to pray uh, and, and trust God. Just have faith, pray, trust God. Um, but the problem is, it feels like, okay, I'm praying and I'm trusting God, but I don't actually know that he's listening. And then somebody else will come around and they'll say something like, well, just read your Bible. Like, that's how you know you can trust God. Just read your Bible. But then you bump into stories like this. And this story feels like your story. Right? Like, why me? That was, I'm guessing, the question the disciples are asking. They're in a boat alone. And then, why not them? Jesus dismissed the crowds who don't like him anyway at this point. He dismisses the crowds to go home to safety. They go in the boat. Why us? Why not them? And then where, where, Jesus, where's Jesus? He's alone. He's off somewhere else. Where are you, God? These are the stories that this question, I think if, we, if, you, if you sit with the question long enough, and we talk about the up and to the right journey, this is the story that you just begin to see. Like there's, there's, These are serious questions. Now, um, what makes the story even more like what do we do with this story, is uh, if we were to take the story and we were to pull it from our imagination, whatever pictures you're picturing as you think about the story, pull it out of the imagination and you were to settle the story on the, on the dirt of Israel, like on the soil of Israel, um, we kind of, what we think, we know where Jesus would have taught this story, or where this story would have taken place. We know the sea. The sea is known as the Sea of Galilee, um, it's a lake. It's not a big sea. It's just a little lake. Um, but then we also know where Jesus probably was, which mountain is being referred to here. The mountain is known as Mount Arbel. I've talked about it often because it is, uh, somebody said, isn't this other hike your favorite hike? No, this is my favorite hike in Israel. I love this hike. Um, this is a picture of Mount Arbel, uh, kind of taken halfway through. You see the Sea of Galilee in the background. I show you this picture to show you that when you're on top of Mount Arbel, next picture, you can see the whole lake. The whole lake. So in this story, if Jesus is up on the mountain, now this was often known as the mountain of prayer because this is where uh, religious teachers would climb to pray over the communities below them. So high candidate for this is the mountain Jesus is on right here. If he's on this mountain, he could look down and he could see this boat, his friends, these disciples battling the waves. That makes it even harder, right? Does God just watch this? Watch me suffer? Watch me going through this? I'm praying, but like he's not near. He's up there somewhere. Like what do we do with this story? Okay, to get at that, let's, uh, let's ask another question that maybe helps us put the pieces together. Um, the question I want to ask is, what would the disciples have understood about this moment that's playing out before them? What would they have seen, understood, or known about this moment that because we live in a different culture, time, place, we may just miss? 
What would they have seen or known that we miss? So a little bit of cultural context work. There is a detail in the story, and this detail is absolutely crucial to the story. This particular detail, uh, it's, it's so loaded that the whole story pivots on the detail. Here's the detail, and it's the obvious detail. The detail in the story that everything in the story pivots on is Jesus comes out to his disciples walking on the water. Now, if you just read the story and you didn't grow up in church, you're thinking, that's a weird detail. Why is Jesus walking on the water? Why that detail? It's a weird moment. It feels like a weird party trick. I actually learned that there was a hotel that was trying to get permission to put a, a glass walkway into the Sea of Galilee so that you could take your own picture walking on the Sea of Galilee. Awful idea. It's an awful idea, but it's hilarious. Um, the chutzpah on that guy, he's going to, yes. Uh, no, uh, the, why the detail? Why, why is Jesus out there walking on the water? And if you notice, that's the detail that changes the whole story. That's the detail that spurs the whole rest of the story into motion. What feels like a party trick for them is not seen as a party trick. They see something bigger in the detail. Uh, if you notice, it's this detail that makes Peter want to jump out of the boat we talked before about how a disciple wants to be like their rabbi. He sees his rabbi on the water. He wants to be just like his rabbi. But it's this detail that he says, I'm going to jump out on the water. It's this detail. Catch this one. If you're note takers, don't miss this one. It's this detail that makes the disciples not just follow Jesus as their rabbi, but worship Jesus. That detail, this is the first time you're going to read in the Gospels that the disciples worship Jesus. Now, again, as Christians, that one flies right under our nose because we worship Jesus all the time. But that detail to a Jewish audience, and the disciples are Jewish disciples, to the Jewish people, the central prayer of the Jewish people is there's one God, and he alone is to be worshipped. There's no higher source of blasphemy than to worship someone that's not the one God. So in this story, when we read that the disciples are worshipping Jesus— Somehow for them, and for us as the reader, we should catch this, they're equating this Jesus with this God. You catch that? This is a big deal. This moment, and if that still floats by us, um, this is the moment that Jesus walking on the water that actually leads the disciples to say, okay, Jesus, truly you are the Son of God. So what's in the detail? What is going on in the detail? Now, um, in order to see how big of a moment this is, do a little more cultural context work. I gotta, we got to talk a little bit about how they understood water and then a little bit about how they viewed God, how the, these disciples. What they understood about water and then what they understood about God. First, the detail about water. Now, um, I'm always worried when I recap this one because we talk about, we've talked about this a lot, especially as we've been in Matthew. So I'm gonna try to do it quick because uh, I don't wanna bore those of you who have been around for a while but if you haven't, I'm going to do this quick. And so if this is like, pff, what, what's going on? Let's grab coffee. I'd love to walk you through it. Um, but it's really important to understand this story and many others that to the Jewish people, the water was almost always seen as the abyss, like the pit of evil. So you and I, even if it's storming, if I were to say to you, hey, jump out of the boat, you're going to do it probably. Because for us, we love the adventure. We love water. Uh, most of us, our dream vacation somehow involves water. But to the Jewish people of the first century, 
the water was always symbolic of the abyss. Why? Well, to begin, because that's how they read their Bible. The Bible begins, Genesis 1, page 1 in your Bible. The Bible begins with watery chaos. The, the Hebrew phrase is tohu vabohu. Tohu vabohu. It means we translate it formless and void. But in Isaiah, that same phrase comes up and it's desolate waste. It's chaos. And the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos and starts to bring order into the chaos. But water becomes a symbol of chaos. You move ahead a few chapters to like page five or six in your Bible, story of Noah, and you got more watery chaos, the flood. You move forward a few more pages to a guy named Moses. And Moses, he makes it through the sea because the water parts, but the Egyptians are drowned in the sea. The water becomes symbolic of the abyss. Uh, the book of Job describes the sea as the place where the, the monsters live, Leviathan and Beelzebub. Um, the, 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 the Psalms describe the sea, if you read through the, the words of the Psalms, as the place of pure evil inside. So when you get to Matthew chapter 8, this is when we, we really dove into it this year. Um, Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus crosses on the sea with his disciples and they encounter a storm. When you read that he gets to the other side, so he says, peace be still to the storm. He gets to the other side, sees a flock, uh, pit, flock of pigs. <laughs> Sounds like a new band. <laughs> Where the flock of pigs? Uh, he sees a bunch of pigs. Bunch? Bunch isn't right either. Herd. Herd. I heard you. Uh, Heard of pigs, uh, he sends the demons into the pigs. The pigs run off the sea. And we say, why are these pigs suicidal? That's not how they would have read it. They would have read it as they're returning home. That's where home is. The home is the sea. That's where the demons go. Uh, in the very end of the scriptures, when you get to the book of Revelation, the last, uh, second to last chapter in the Bible, we read that in heaven, there is no longer any sea. And we think, well, we love water. Yeah, John does too. The author loves it too. He talks about water in heaven. But his point is there's no evil in heaven. Okay, that's a bunch of recap. Does that make sense though? The abyss. So they understood the sea is the abyss. What they understood about water is that this place is where evil dwells. Which is why, by the way, if you're still unconvinced, they see Jesus walking on the water and their response is, he must be a ghost. Right? That's how they respond, because that's where ghosts lived. That's, the, that's, that's how they understood water. Now, um, the second reason is a little bit less biblical and a little more practical. Here's what else they understood about water. Uh, now, um, here, I'll tell you another story. Uh, if I were to take you to the Sea of Galilee right now, uh, if I were to charter a plane and we were all to, to go out to the Sea of Galilee, more than likely right now, if I were to pull up on the Sea of Galilee, I'm going to be able to sit you down on the beach and it is going to be the most peaceful, like a deer panther for water, like kind of moment. Like you're, it's going to be a peaceful, calm, pretty picture. Almost always the Sea of Galilee. It's a small lake. Uh, I just read a stat that you can fit one or 350 seas of Galilee into Lake Michigan. Right? It's like Reed's Lake. Okay? It's, it's, not a, it's not a giant lake. It's, and almost every time I've been there, uh, the word I would always use is peaceful. It's peaceful. Now, um, if I were to get a boat, actually, so we did this in our, on our Israel trip uh, in May. We got a boat. Um, now, we didn't take, uh, we actually know the kind of boat Jesus would have, would have taken. We found one. This is a huge discovery. Let me nerd out just for a second. Uh, this is a, so actually, go back to that picture real quick. Sorry. 
uh, right in this area, okay? They found, uh, after a storm, uh, archaeologists in 1986 discovered what looked to be old wood. We've since dated it, and it's, it dates back to the first or second century. It's a fishing boat. Um, if you're interested in nerd stuff, which you should be, um, figure out how they got the boat out of the ground. Look this up. How they got it out of the ground and moved into where now it's like a climate-controlled, preserved museum. Um, it's, a, it's a fun story. But we, uh, obviously, this is too small, for us to fit our group in, we had about 50 of us. So we got a boat that looked like this. Uh, that was our boat. Not quite the same thing. It had an engine and all the, all the works. But that was our boat. And, uh, it, and our, my goal, so I got to teach a little bit on this boat. And my goal was to try to explain to our group how, amongst other things, there's a couple Bible stories I wanted to locate on the boat. But I was trying to explain to uh, our group how the Sea of Galilee can turn pretty violent. That's the word in our Bibles. Violent storm came out of the water. So I'm trying to explain this, and I'm explaining like, okay, so right now if you're facing, if you're out on the boat and you're facing the Sea of Galilee, uh, you're feeling a breeze on your face. That's a west wind, right? It's calm. But if the wind changes direction and comes up over the east, because uh, the Sea of Galilee is low and there's hills. If it comes up over those hills, the, like, really quickly, what can be really calm and peaceful can turn really violent. The winds can really, really pick up. So I'm explaining this to them. And if I'm fully honest with you, uh, at the same time, I've never seen the Sea of Galilee anything other than peaceful, ever. Right? The only reason I knew that their storms could happen was because I remember going there my first time thinking, wait a minute, this lake is way smaller than I thought it was. How could there be that big of a storm? And so I Googled it, and I looked up the answers, and I learned about how the weather patterns can shift. But it still feels like, to be honest with you, it still felt a little bit like, yeah, but how bad can it really be? I mean, we live by Lake Michigan. You've seen Lake Michigan storms. Like, this is so small. You've seen Reed's Lake storms. How bad could this really be? Right? And so then you get into your little bit like, ah, maybe the disciples were wimps. Just naming it. Like, but, like, so I, I'm, but I'm not saying that to this group. I'm saying, here's how it could work, and here's how it does work. And, and then later that night, uh, we were on the patio of our hotel. And a um, bunch of wild stories in this, but uh, we were on our patio, patio of our hotel, and we're kind of hanging out and talking. This hotel happened by accident um, because, because of COVID, the one we were going to stay on, which was off of the sea a little bit, got closed down and uh, had yet to reopen. And so we are staying in this other hotel, which I had not been to before, and uh, we're sitting on the patio, and a handful of us uh, are chatting and um, having like a good time, just talking about life and faith and God and family and all those things. And somebody says to me, um, hey, so do you really think the storms can get that big? And I was like, yeah, I understand what you're thinking. I, th- I thought the same thing. Like it's, it's, it, but I'm telling you, this is what I've read, and, and, and I'm like, you can look it up too. It happens. There's... Anyway, so that, that's, I tell you that long story to tell you. Then I went to bed. <laughs> And um, so I'm rooming with my buddy, Jeremy Cruz, and he's leading the trip with me. And, uh, and so we're, we're in the same room, and all of a sudden I hear what sounds like a, like a freight train just coming, coming through our hotel room. And, uh, and, and I had a dilemma, though, because I'm sleeping in a bed over here, and Jeremy's sleeping in a bed over here, and then there's a sliding door that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. But in order to get to the door, I've got to step over Jeremy and open the door, and if the wind is this, this he's going to wake up. And so I'm already awake, 
And there's nothing worse than being the selfish person when you're awake that you wake up everybody else in the house. Just because misery loves company, right? Because um, I'm already doing that head game of, okay, if I go to sleep now, I'll get four hours of sleep. You ever play this game? If I go to sleep now, I'll get three hours of sleep. And then you're like, I can survive off four hours. I did that back in 2008. I can do that again. Uh, I can survive off three hours. And then you get to a point where you're like, I can't survive off one hour of sleep. I got a long day. So I was like, I don't want to wake him up. But I'm laying there, and then all of a sudden I hear a smash. Okay, now I love Jeremy. I love sleep. But I also love adventure. So I got to figure out what's going on. So uh, I decide I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to sneak out. And I kind of sneak over him and get to the door and open it up. And then I was like, he's got, I got to wake him up for this. Because um, let me show you what I saw at uh, about 2.33 o'clock on what was a Sunday night a couple months ago. There's a whole other video with just me going, whoa, in the background, but you didn't want that. That's the patio where we were sitting, right there. And then uh, it's going to pan out. So the see if the video quality is clear enough. So that right there is a city known as Susita or Hippos. It is known as the other side in the Bible. It's part of the Decapolis. That's where we were sitting. Was down there. I, I sat outside and I watched the storm um, for for hours. So let me show you a couple of images of, um, this was our hotel the next day. We actually couldn't get breakfast here the next day because the kitchen's on the main level and it got trashed. Um, our, there was a gazebo here that's now over here. Um, this is a pool. And let me show you another image. I think there's a basketball court. Yeah. And then one more. That's a basketball court. I mean, it just destroyed. I mean, you can pray for these business owners. Like, it just destroyed uh, the Sea of Galilee, and I just remember like that night thinking, I have studied this. I intellectually understand what's going on, I think. Like, I think I understand how the, um, I think I get it, but it's almost like God needed me to say, like, let me show you it so that you realize it's not just a story. Um, but I was thinking about this moment of when I was going to talk to you and show you that video, and um, listen, the, these disciples weren't cowards. When they say, we think that this, this, there's evil in this thing. They understood. They may not have had the sophisticated language of how the weather patterns change. But if you read the story, it says that the wind has changed directions. The wind's on them now. Um, they understand that enough to know that when the wind changes, these are fishermen, it gets ugly. And you have these scriptures that say that's because there's all like the picture of hell and the abyss is the sea. And then you have their practical real life experience and they've seen it happen. And then all of this and Jesus comes out walking on the water. Second detail. Um, 
behind this moment of Jesus walking on the water, uh, something about the sea, and then there's something that is revealed in this moment about God. Jesus walking on the water wasn't just a party trick. That's not how they saw it. They saw it, and what they understood was that throughout the Old Testament, lots of people do miracles. So sometimes we think that Jesus is the only person who does miracles in the Bible. That's not true. Elijah did miracles. Elijah, I mean, lots of people do miracles. Jesus isn't even the only one who raised the dead. But there's one miracle that they said in the Old Testament, only one person, only one can do. That one is God alone. One miracle. The one miracle that God alone can do. Uh, Job chapter 9 says this. God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Only God walks on the chaos. Only God treads on the waves. Psalmist says this, Psalm 77. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. You see the picture. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Why is this detail about Jesus walking on the water such a big deal? Well, there's something about water that they understood. Water's like the picture of evil. And there's something about walking on that water that they understood. Only God walks on the water. And just in case we don't connect those two pieces, notice how Jesus responds. Jesus says immediately to them, because they're, they're freaking out, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Weird phrase, if you, if you think about it in English. Like, why would our translator say, it is I? Do you come home and say, here, honey, it is I? Like, like, that's not, like, that's not how we talk. Why translate it that way? Because they're trying to capture something that's in the original. It's a weird phrase in the original Greek. The Greek is ego, like lego my egos. Ego, I, me. Ego means I. I, me means I am. It's a weird phrase to say, I, I am. Don't be afraid. Take courage. I, I am. It's a weird phrase. And it's exactly how God says to Moses, way earlier in the story, when they say, what's your name? Here's what you're to say to them. Say, I am sent you. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. We translate it Yahweh. When they ask you, what's your name? Just say, I am sent you. What does Jesus say? Don't be afraid. I, I am. And in this moment, they stop. And for the first time in all of scriptures, they worship Jesus, not just they don't just follow him as a brilliant teacher or a rabbi, but they worship him as Yahweh, God himself. Isn't that cool? That's so cool, yeah. Um, back to the question, why me? Why not them? Why God? Let me share with you three observations. I'll try to make them quick. Three observations. Uh, first one's connected to that weird detail at the beginning of the story. Jesus made them get into a boat. Made them get into a boat. Why does he make them get in? That's the first one, right? Why this? Why me? Why God? Why did we go through this? Now, um, it's important to know in this story that this is not the first time this story happens in Matthew. Essentially, kind of is, but not fully. Right? In Matthew chapter 8, they're out on the same lake. 
Matthew chapter 8, same kind of storm happens. Same fear. Same panic. Matthew chapter 8, full eight chapter or six chapters earlier, Matthew chapter 8, they're in the same kind of storm. They've been here before. Why does Jesus make them get in the boat? I wonder. I'm just wondering with you. I wonder if Jesus makes them get back in the boat now because he recognizes that if they don't dare get back in the boat now, they may never get back in that boat. Some of you are parents and you know that that's true with kids, right? They fall off their bike now and if we just go in the house now and say, okay, it's, a good, it's been a good day, they may never get back on that bike. Uh, there was an experiment done in 1873, a German zoologist named Dr. Carl Mobius. It's not a famous experiment. I uh, took a pike fish, so a big fish, and uh, he wanted to feed this, he wanted to, to test a theory he had. And so in with the pike fish, he put a series of 40 to 50 minnows in the same tank. Within a few minutes, the pike fish ate all the minnows. Tried it again, same, ex- same results. Again, same results. Okay, so, so you now have a test, right? Uh, you put a pike with minnows, the pike's going to eat the minnows. He then took the same tank and he put a, a sheet of glass, like a pane of glass, between the minnows on one side and the pike fish on the other side, put the pike fish in, and then dropped in the minnows. The pike fish charged the glass, got stunned, charged again, got stunned, charged again. He, he did this experiment multiple times to the same effect. Uh, sometimes the fish would actually like, stun himself so much that he would flip upside down. They thought he died, and then he would recover, and uh, he, would, he would drive at it again, until, just like Aiden Hutchinson. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, I have a semi-serious point to make. Um, he, uh, he then waited until the, the fish had given up. He then pulled the, the, plane, the pane of glass out of the tank, and what he noticed was that the, the minnow would swim right along with the pike fish and just kind of hang it out there, uh, even to the point where the minnow would bump into the, the pike fish and the pike fish wouldn't eat it. When they let the experiment go on long enough, there was even pike fish that would allow the minnow to swim around them and would die of starvation before they would eat them. Uh, this now is uh, this famous experiment. Again, it was tried again and again to the same results. Um, this tendency to allow fear of past behavior to dictate future behavior, future decisions, is now known as pike syndrome. Uh, if you're interested in studying this more, look up pike syndrome. I think what often happens when we get to the storms is we stop, right? We stop. Jesus in this moment sees his disciples and, uh, and they're freaking out. They're, they've gone in the storm before. If you read that story, they never really get out of the boat. They're like terrified to take, go with Jesus on the shore. They just want to get back home. And now in this story, I think what Jesus recognizes is if we don't get back in, we stop, right? To, to, uh, to date again after the last relationship absolutely crushed you is terrifying. To um, try to conceive again after you lost one, two, is terrifying. To risk again after you risked all your family's hard-earned money on this business venture and didn't work is terrifying. It's terrifying to get back into the storm. 
But what's even more terrifying that Jesus understands is the risk of not risking again. If these disciples never get back in a boat, the gospel never makes it to India, to Turkey, to Asia Minor. If the gospel doesn't make it to India, Turkey, Asia Minor, we don't have those people finding Jesus. And if those people don't find Jesus, they don't get on a boat, take the gospel over to a land called America, and we don't have Jesus here. And if we don't have Jesus here, I don't know about you, but my whole life is completely different. This story, like this moment, matters in the whole story. Faith is an up and a down, and if they let it stay down, if they don't trust God, but this not... Okay, that's the first thing. So it makes them get in the boat. Second is about perspective. Second observation about perspective. Um, there's an ironic twist that happens in this storm. Not only does Jesus need them to get in the boat uh, so that they don't stop risking, um, but Jesus needs them to see something about him in this moment. If you read the story, you notice that it actually takes the storm for them to fully see who Jesus is. Up until this point, he's rabbi, he's teacher, he's got authority, he's, there's something different about him. But it takes this moment for them to, for the very first time, worship. Some things get put into perspective when we go through the storm. Or maybe we could say that differently. Uh, storms put things into perspective. A few years ago, I uh, read a book that stuck with me. It's a book called um, When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air. Anybody read this book? Ooh, homework for you. It's, it's a good book. Um, uh, the, it's a short memoir. It's real short, actually. It's not, not intimidating. It's an interesting read. Uh, by a neurosurgeon named Paul Kalanithi. Kalanithi. Um, he, uh, in his final year of residency, discovered he had terminal cancer. And so the memoir kind of follows his journey. Um, again, it's short because he's writing it in a hurry because he's, he's got terminal cancer and he knows he's not going to outlast this. And so he's writing in a hurry. Um, and then on March 9, 2015, uh, Paul Kalanithi died of cancer, leaving behind his wife, Lucy, and his eight-month-old daughter, Katie. Um, I won't give any specifics of the book away because, uh, honestly, um, it's one of those books that's heavy and light at the same time. Like, it makes you feel real sad and also really hopeful at the same time. It's really well written. Um, and the letter he writes to his daughter, Katie, at the end of the book is worth the price of the book alone. It's so good. Um, but uh, let me show you just a part of the story. Um, the story begins like lots of our stories begin. Uh, he, Paul is working hard. He's actually, um, because he's finishing his residency as a neurosurgeon, he's working harder than maybe most of us, dare I say maybe mostly all of us, uh, will ever work. Like he's work, 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 work. And, uh, and they are newly married. And uh, so he's got work to do, things to study, obligations to fulfill. Um, I, I mean, a residency as a neurosurgeon may just be one of the most difficult jobs, uh, one of the most difficult, intense years of any, any profession, any time. And what he discovered and what he acknowledges in the book is that he and his wife Lucy had begun to do this because of all the work. They just kind of grew separate. And then Paul got cancer. And uh, he uh, doesn't get the chance to write his own epilogue in his book, but his wife finishes his book for him. And let me just read you uh, a bit of what she writes toward the end. She says this. She says, most of our family and friends 
will have been unaware until the publication of this book of the marital trouble Paul and I weathered toward the end of his residency. Anyone else have family and friends that are unaware of your storm? Most of our family and friends will be una- have been unaware until the publication of this book of the marital trouble Paul and I weathered toward the end of his residency. But I am glad Paul wrote about it. It's part of our story. Another redefinition, a piece of the struggle and redemption and meaning of Paul's life and mine. His cancer diagnosis was like a nutcracker, getting us back into the soft, nourishing meat of our marriage. We hung on to each other for his physical survival and our emotional survival, our love stripped bare. We each joked to close friends that the secret to, having a, to saving a relationship is for one person to become terminally ill. The story is so powerful, I think. It's not surprising, though, is it? You've heard this story. Uh, maybe not this particular story, but you've heard stories like this, right? The, the, the family who goes through something absolutely tragic and realizes we have been spending our money in the wrong spots. Or the, the husband who watches something fall upon his family and realizes I have been distant and I need to get my life back in order. You've, you've seen this story. There is a clarity that comes when we go through the storm. There's a perspective. Now, does God put you in the storm to gain that perspective? I don't think, that's, I don't think you can find any reason to believe that in this um, but I do think there's something about the storm when you're there that gives life a perspective to see what really matters. Those who have shaped our lives the most, I would, I would dare wager to, to every single one of us, are the ones who have gone through the storms and have come out the other side with a sense of perspective. Something happens. Now, again, we wouldn't wish the storms on our worst enemies but something happens. There's a clarity that comes when we're in the storm. Third uh, observation, also about perspective. So uh, come with me back to the balcony of that hotel, the one I showed you the video of. Um, I, I remember standing there. I, 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 there's handfuls of moments every time I go to Israel where I, I find myself thinking, I don't think I could have ever experienced, I don't think I would have ever known this had I not experienced this. Uh, this was one of those, this last trip. And I was standing on the balcony, and I'm holding my iPhone, and I'm filming this. Again, I got like multiple shots, because in the background, most of the other ones, I'm like, whoa. Um, but I'm filming this, and, uh, and I just remember thinking, like, I'm not afraid of the storm, right? I'm not afraid of the storm. And I thought about this story, and I thought about uh, Jesus up on the mountaintop in the safety of Mount Arbel. Like, the reason I'm not afraid of the storm is because I'm sitting on a balcony, I'm not down on the dock. I'm not in the water. I'm up above it. And so I thought of this moment in which Jesus is sitting on Mount Arbel watching his disciples in the middle of their storm. And then Jesus climbs down the mountain and he goes out to them. For those of you who are in the middle of a storm, uh, there is a God who would leave the safety of heaven for you. And we see it in the story, and we can't lose it. We can't lose the heart of that. We serve a God who loves each and every single one of us enough that he would leave the safety of Mount Arbel and would travel down and go right into the center of the storm. And for every single one of us who, if we're not in the storm ourselves, 
We have friends that we're watching go through the storm. The mission Jesus gives his disciples isn't just to know, I love you. Like, that's the starting block. But the mission is, the world is in the midst of a storm. Go to them. They're hurting. They're struggling. Go to them. Uh, we're going to take communion this morning. And uh, we talk about the meaning, like, the meaning of communion. What are we doing when we take communion? And uh, we really kind of distill this down to at least three things. Uh, communion is a celebration of communion, hope, and remembrance. So communion, because we cannot do this alone. Together we commune, like as a community, and with our God we commune. Uh, but it's not just about community, communing. Um, it's not just about remembering what Jesus did. That's important. Um, but it's also about a hope. Uh, I want to extend communion to those of us this morning uh, every single one of us who need God this morning to give us some hope again. Uh, there is hope again. If you right now are thinking, I don't know that this marriage pulls out of this, there is hope again. Um, if you're thinking right now, I, my child keeps breaking my heart, I don't know that I can make it any, there is hope again. He's good. He will not abandon you in the storm. We want to invite you to the table um, and maybe you make your prayer, God, I need some hope. And so as I eat this bread and I drink this little bit of juice, Lord, would you restore something in me that's dying? Um, uh, we've got four stations in the front, and then um, Mike Tiggleman in the back, there he's waving. Um, he will be around to serve if you would like him to come to you and serve you. He would love to do that. Um, but otherwise, we have four stations in the front. When you're ready, um, the band's going to join me, and then when you're ready, you can come forward and uh, there's gluten-free options on the edge tables, and then these two do not have it. Um, and then Mike will have all of that. Um, but, but again, don't just let this be a ritual. Don't just let this be a religious thing. Um, allow God to put something back together this morning. Would you join me for a word of prayer? Uh, Lord, um, we thank you that at the center of Matthew, there is a reminder that you're a God who cares about your creation so much that you don't abandon them. Lord, we thank you for, um, for the moments where we're forced back into the boat. Lord, we, we're, we're grateful for the moments where you remind us that even though we may have given up on ourselves, you will not give up on us. And Lord, we're thankful for those moments when, when we try and we're falling again, you reach out your hand and you save us. Lord, I pray for marriages this morning. Lord, I pray for families this morning. Lord, I pray for uh, a, a growing, growing number of people who are so lonely they can't imagine another day. Lord, I pray for every single one of us and all the pains we carry through this door. Would you bring a fresh start and would it begin right now? Jesus, we pray this in your name and everybody said. As we've said so many times before, we just want to say thanks for spending a little time with us. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, visit us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sundays at 10 a.m., you can find our services streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor Church and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.